Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. When you lead from a base of expertise, your confidence and credibility are derived from your knowledge. People follow you as a result. However, when you take a stretch assignment and span outside of your comfort zone, leading requires a different approach. One of influence, inspiration, compromise, and courage. We are here to talk about how to take that next step and keep going. Now, here is your host, Wanda Wallace. Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. I want to start with a little bit of a provocative statement, and then I'm going to hope in the next hour to prove to you that that statement is actually correct. So my statement is the first, none of us, as in not one of us, me included, I don't care how competent or cautious or smart or savvy you think you are, none of us are immune from being fooled. In fact, all of us can be fooled surprisingly fairly often, and by fooled I mean deceived, confused, misperceived, a whole host of things. And we're going to talk about it today to say, if you doubt it, I think we're going to prove to you that you can be deceived. And we're also going to give you some clues about how you could minimize the worst of the impact of the deception without having to become hypercritical of every human being that you interact with. All right. And along the way, we're going to talk about how these scams actually work how it is that people get fooled, and of course, what you can do about it. So my guest today, Daniel Simons, is a professor in the Department of Psychology at the University of Illinois. He's also in the business school there and in the advertising department. And his first book with my second guest, Christopher Chabri, is entitled The Invisible Gorilla. Now, you may have seen their work because you may have seen the video of people playing basketball and a gorilla walks through the scene and everyone is fooled, completely missing the gorilla. If that doesn't work for you, just Google it. There are about five or six other variations on that theme that also demonstrates how easy it is to miss something as obvious as a gorilla. But the book for today that we're talking about is Nobody's Fool, Why We Get Taken In and What We Can Do About It. Now, Daniel scholarly researches on the limits of human perception, memory, and awareness, um, and he's best known for showing people that they are less aware of their visual surroundings than they think, hence the um, comment about the gorilla. Um, Dan's received a bunch of academic honors and awards, um, including the IG Nobel Prize in Psychology, which is an award for research that makes people laugh and makes you think. And it's about showing it's possible to hide a gorilla in plain sight. And he's obviously this work is very popular in pre- in the popular media and in a bunch of science museums. My second guest is his co-author Christopher Chabri. He's also a professor at Geisinger in Pennsylvania and a healthcare in the healthcare system, and he co-directs the behavioral insights team. Um, and he's taught at Union College and at Harvard, a fellow of the Association of Psychological Science, and co-author of this book and major colleague along the way, shall I say, Christopher. Welcome to the show, both of you. Thanks for having us on. Great to be here. All right. So I'm going to start with why. What are you trying to help people understand and do with this book? And what I'm really getting at is what kind of problems were you seeing that both of you thought needed to be addressed with the book? Um, So I think the main thing that we wanted people to understand after reading this book is that, uh, you know, when we're deceived, fooled, tricked, we're victimized by 
misinformation, something as, as innocuous as misinformation or not innocuous, but sort of a small all the way up to sort of, you know, major fraud. Um, it's not just randomly being unlucky. Um, there's actually patterns to how this works. And there are reasons why certain scams work and certain kinds of misinformation and disinformation work and how they work. And for people to really start to recognize sort of what are those patterns? How does uh, how does deception work? And therefore, learn a little bit about how they can avoid it themselves or at least minimize their chances of being sort of victimized in a major way. Um, kind of like you said in the introduction, where none of us are immune. We'll talk about that more, I guess. But the message from the book is... Um, there's something you can do about it. And the first step is learning how it actually works rather than just sort of being amazed that people can be victimized by things, learn the patterns of how it actually works. Um, and then you can start to, uh, you know, to improve your chances. All right. So Dan, did you want yeah. to add to that, Daniel? Well, I could just add to that, that, you know, frauds and cons and scams are, are really entertaining. We, we see them in the media all the time. And when you're watching a movie about a heist or a con, you know that there's a con taking place. So you can see all the red flags that the, the victims in the movie are missing. And that makes it really easy to think to yourself, oh, I would have seen that. I would have noticed. I would have been alert to the problems. When the reality is when a fraud is targeting you and you are in the moment and you don't realize that you're being conned, all of the tactics that are used in the movies can be applied to you. And they're, they're the same sorts of tactics. But there's a danger because we see these movies and we can see about, we can learn about a con or a fraud or a scam in the news. Um, it's easy to think that only gullible people could get taken in by them because we know about the fraud in advance. And that's a real danger. And it's one of the central themes that we talk about and that you mentioned in your introduction, which is that we all can be victimized by a scam if we are the ones who are being targeted. Targeted. That's the part that I found most interesting about the book. And I love the book, by the way. I have my own copy here, just, you know, kind of as that's how I found you was the book first. Um, but one of the things I learned in reading the book, you know, we've all seen the email scheme. Let's take the scam, the classic one of, you know, this person in another country has a bunch of money to give you if you'll only respond and, you know, do various things. I look at that scam and say, how could anybody get fooled by that? But the point that you make is that scams are targeted specifically for a demographic population. So can you say, both of either of you, say a little bit more about how that all works? Give me an example of how that works. Well, that particular one is interesting because the, the scammers don't want people who are skeptical or critical of it to respond because the thing that takes all their time is the interaction to gradually reel in somebody until they actually send money. And if you're a skeptic, if you're critical about critical thinking about that, and you look at it and say, this is ridiculous, how would I ever, how would this ever work? They don't want you to respond because then you'd be wasting their time. You're not likely to ever send them money. So the people they want to recruit in that case are the people who, in the moment they receive that, are open to the possibility that it's true. So that might be a tiny, tiny percentage of the people they send out emails to, but it's cheap to send out millions of emails. It's costly and labor-intensive to reel in a victim. So their goal is to just hit the people who don't find it particularly outrageous. Okay. And the, the you know that's that's why they that, that's why these emails are so weird, right? That's why they have spelling errors and they sound like they're not written by a marketing department that's really trying to be smooth and so on. That way, everybody who sees through that stuff will just delete and not waste time. 
right? And you could say they're looking for gullible people. I don't think gullibility is the right lens to look at this through because we're all gullible to something or other, right? It's not just there are some people who are gullible and other people not. Everyone's gullible for the right thing, but they're looking for the people who are ready to be victims of their scam and and filtering out everybody else who 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 immediately like notices oh this is a, one of those weird looking you know email scam things and they just delete it without spending any more time and that's why one of the ways to one of the ways to confound these people is to actually reply and play with them essentially you know because that just wastes their time you know and as long as you never send them any money and you're entertained by it you're making the world a better place by cutting down on the amount of time they have to scam you know people who really will send the money <laughs> That's an interesting angle on how to stop some of this. All right, let's take a step up. All right, uh, what kind of scam would pull me in? And I think I'm pretty savvy, but what are the kind of scams that really get smarter people? I have one. Okay, maybe we can do do it to you right now. No, I was just kidding. But um, there <laughs> there have been some interesting ones that have got journalists who you would think would be you know fairly critical thinking people. There was a um, there was a journalist in uh, India, I believe, um, who received an invitation, was told that she had been given a fellowship at Harvard um, to be on the, you know, I don't know, the faculty of the journalism school or something like that. And and she got all the way to Cambridge, Massachusetts and started knocking on doors before she figured out that there was actually no faculty offer at Harvard. Nobody at Harvard knew anything about this and so on. And it was all a scam that had been, you know, and it, it, there you would think that uh, you know, why why would that why would something like that work? Well, it's obviously very appealing, you know, use the famous familiar names, you know, Harvard and uh and and so on. And there is a journalism program, you know, there, and they do have journalists who come and be in residence and uh and and so on. So you you present it credibly enough, um uh it, it could work, right? So I think that that kind of scam could work on a lot of like well-educated professionals, but it would have to be targeted towards them. Like if you told me I was going to be a journalism fellow at Harvard, I would say that's ridiculous. But if you told me maybe I was going to give a keynote speech at some big conference, you know, somewhere or something like that, I might say, wow, that would be cool. Like I could see where they would be inviting me for that. And I, I don't know if I'd get all the way on the plane and get there or not, but it could work. There, there are other variants of those that are that are specifically targeted to academics or other people who regularly attend conferences and are paid to do that. So, mm -hmm. um, this is one that you know, targeting scientists, people who are trained to think critically about evidence. So the standard tactic is you get a call from somebody who claims to be the conference organizer, um, and you're giving a talk at that conference already. You know that you are. And so, okay, we're trying to arrange your, your travel and accommodations for you. So what kind of room would you like? What's your frequent flyer number? Um, and can you, you know, put your credit card down so that we can have, uh, you know, that down for incidentals? But of course, everything's going to be covered. Um but they have nothing to do with the conference. They looked up the conference listing, uh, saw who was giving a speech, contacted those people, and pretended to be the people who would normally arrange the travel for them. And if you didn't think about it for that moment, if you're somebody who is really busy, you're doing lots of things, somebody calls up and says, oh yeah, that makes sense that they would arrange that for me. Anytime somebody calls you and asks for your credit card information, that's just an entry point to a scam. If you call them and you know that it's the right number, then it's less of a risk. But the scammers know that somebody who's really busy and not thinking about it in that moment and who's used to having their travel arranged, you know, executives or, um, right. you know, academics can fall for it. And that's a common scam now. 
I can see that. And I'm a, I suspect I could have fallen for that one. Mm -hmm. And most likely if I was in a rush on that particular day and I sent it off to somebody in my office that says, please, would you take care of this? Then bingo, off we go. I mean, I can see yeah. how that would happen. And, well, and that, that being in a rush is a key thing, right? That that not taking the time to think about it is why it's not just gullible people. It's people who are targeted and who don't have time to question whether something's true or not. Okay. All right. So I started with this notion that all of us are gullible. So you're obviously believing that. So what's your point of view and why? Why do you believe we're all gullible? What's what's your evidence? Well, I think we should say that there are degrees of gullibility, of course, right? There are individual differences. But we all can be targeted and fall for something that somebody else would look at and say, how could they have fallen for that? Right. right? So we all are potentially able to fall for a scam, no matter how cynical or skeptical we are. And it might be the case that there are some people who don't have to be targeted as much to fall for something. They might fall for a wider range of things. So there might be individual differences in gullibility, but we all can be subject to deception if we're the ones who are targeted by it. So in that sense, we're all, I don't know if gullible is the right word, but we're all at risk in that way. Yeah. A we've, looked at a lot of, yeah. we've looked at a ton of scams and a ton of these kinds of things. We, we've never seen, we've seen so many different kinds of people get, you know, get scammed in major ways that has never emerged, you know, any group that's invulnerable. I think the evidence is sort of the evidence is just from sort of looking at the totality of, of all the different kinds of scams. And, and and of course, we're not talking just about scams that cost people their life savings, but all the way down to spreading false beliefs, right? So like everybody is is is, is subject to um, seeing some post on social media, deciding, I really agree with that, that makes sense to me, and then they forward it to other people or they start, you know, and we would classify that as, you know, a form of deception or at least being a victim, you know, of, of that kind of thing. And um there's no like IQ threshold or education threshold or something like that. It really depends on what the message is and what the scam is, as Dan said. All right. CEOs. CEOs who make a living out of making really good judgments. That's their business is to have great judgment. Can they get scammed? Uh, I think I'm going to say yes <laughs> to that one <laughs> because, A, we have many examples of CEOs um, or at least people at that level of achievement, uh, you know, being scammed. Um, but part of the mechanism of how it happens, I think, is like you said, they they got to where they are in part because they've made good decisions, or at least they've made decisions that had good outcomes, um, you know, and, and that can increase one's confidence level. Um, so you can become sort of overconfident because you're the position you're at comes in part from your skill and your talent and your knowledge, but also in part from luck, maybe some lucky decisions, some things went your way, market conditions were good, you know, you got hired at the right time. So you've got a little bit of that overconfidence coming from, from that. But then also, um, uh, you can sort of tend to, and this happens, I think, to a lot of people who are very accomplished, they can mistakenly think that their uh, expertise is more general than it actually is. So they start to make sort of quicker, more intuitive decisions on other matters that they might not have as much expertise in as let's say the industry, you know, where their career, you know, and their knowledge and skill is really, you know, solid. And this has almost become sort of a, a trope, like people in the tech business who are pronouncing on all kinds of things that they don't really have expertise in, um, or uh, professors who, you know, start pronouncing on all kinds of things that they don't have PhDs and, uh, you know, and so on, and ourselves excluded, of course. Um, uh, so I think those are at least two of the things that are, that are going on, uh, that are going on there, but also there are scams that are targeted at very high achieving CEO types because they've 
you can make a lot of money by scam by scamming them, right? Right. Yeah. Right. It's it really is that sort of when you've developed expertise in an area, um, then you often will have good gut instincts about that area because you recognize patterns. Um, but when you start trusting your gut and thinking that you have great intuitions about everything, you think that you can read people really well, that you can judge whether somebody's being honest or not, that's when you can run into real problems. And of course, a good con artist is somebody who makes you believe them. So they make you trust your gut. Right. And if you're somebody who just thinks that they, your gut is always right, you're in trouble. Yeah. Yeah. I see that. And I see that not just in scams, but in misjudgments about character, in hires, in promotion practices, in favoring one versus another. I mean, we see that throughout the human um, continuum inside business, coming and going, okay, for good and for not so good. So I, I want to talk a little bit about the patterns and the reasons. You've hinted at some of these. One of these is it's targeted to the particular individual and what they're likely to accept or not question. A second pattern is the rush. A third pattern is the trusting your gut. What are the other patterns that we know con artists use to scam us or um, fool us? I, I, would, I would say, say a couple of those are starting. A couple of those are starting preconditions, right? So you're not going to be fooled by a scam that targets you that's irrelevant to you. Right? So it's a precondition um, of being scammed that you have to trust that you're getting, you're hearing the truth. But then there are lots of mechanisms like acting efficiently and being in a rush um, that contribute. Uh, Chris, did you want to jump in with? I, I would say that one of the main tricks that uh, that that scammers use is to manipulate um, our focus. So you started off by mentioning the invisible gorilla video where people are you know watching something and, and paying a lot of attention to it and they don't notice something otherwise very salient. Um, now, we weren't deliberately trying to trick people when we made that video, but oftentimes people in the real world who are trying to scam us are trying to get us to focus on something which is not what is most important to the decision we're making. Um, and that can even be in uh, and that can be inadvertent because people have sort of just naturally learned to market themselves and to sell things that way. It can happen in marketing and politics, not just in in scams. It's there's a continuum of, of techniques across all these uh, across all these areas. So, for example, just presenting your success stories. Let's say you're a consultant and all you do is talk about your big success stories. We don't know how often you know your clients thought you were successful. Um, we don't know uh, whether the success was actually caused by your advice or not. We just know that like after taking your advice, maybe the client you know did better, their profits went up, their sales went up, they you know, who knows what. Um, but actually, uh, you know, the success stories are only a small part of the data that would really be necessary to understand whether hiring this consultant was actually even you know correlated with with good outcomes, let alone causal of those good outcomes. but, uh, you know, a good uh, you know salesperson will sort of direct your attention to a subset of the relevant information that you would want to use to make a decision. And uh, people who are full-on scammers, um, uh, you know, will will adopt uh, you know similar tactics. People trying to sell cryptocurrency scams, for example, will point you to like a couple of really good you know months or something like that, or you know a particular thing that went up a lot, and you know, and so on, and did distract you away from any other information that might actually, you know, be relevant to the decision. And of course, then the time pressure comes in too, because it takes time to actually find all that information and so on. So if, if you would just stop making decisions immediately, that would probably help you quite a bit in, 
you know, and avoiding some of the, the most egregious um, scams of this kind. Focus can lead us to fool ourselves too, in addition to being fooled by others. So one of the reasons that executives tend to trust their gut and think that they're great at things is they remember their success stories and focus on them. And they don't pay a whole lot of attention to how many people would have tried exactly the same thing and failed. Um, so they assume that what they did was what led to their success, that it was causal. And they don't remember all of the ways that things could have gone the wrong way just by chance. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. I have a team exercise that I often have, well, historically have done with teams. And in that one, it's manufactured so that they are going to get a success as a team in solving a problem very rapidly. Okay. It usually happens in five minutes if I'm working with a smart team. But they haven't, because they succeeded, they have no analysis for what caused the success and therefore cannot repeat it, cannot break it down, cannot tolerate a change or a deviation for exactly what you're saying. It's look, we're great. And then there's no analysis for what really drove that and where do we need to put our attention? Like, where's even the stumbling block? that we get stuck. It's really amazing to me that we just don't look at that. And they probably have no idea that it was an external factor. It had nothing to do with them that led them to be successful. It was that you set it up for them to be successful. Um, they, had the, they had the benefit of the situation without realizing it. Yeah, it's really, it's, it is a, it's just like the gorilla exercise in that they'll get to the exact same point over and over and over and over again and not stop and ask, wait, what's happening at this moment? Yeah. That's blocking us. And just, yeah. it's, it's bizarre. It's, really it's similar bizarre. to how magicians work, right? They, they will yeah. get you focused on the effect that they're producing. And you might guess why, how they did it. But by, typically, by the time you're guessing how they did it, it's too late to actually figure out how they did it. But yeah. they've kept you focused so intently that you know, you're going to miss the important information as it passes along the way. And you won't be able to retrospectively figure it out. Right. Right. I think if all of us could get the world, people in the world convinced that what we think we see is only a fraction of what's actually out there, that what we think we remember is not as accurate as we think we remember it, what we think we understand is not all there is to understand, we'd probably be more successful, probably have a better world. I don't know. It's an interesting speculation, but boy, do we miss those perceptions a lot of occasions. All right. So the patterns. I'm rushed. It's targeted to me. It's the kind of information that's relevant to me. There's something that appealed to me. You've manipulated my focus. So I'm focusing on some things and I'm ignoring some others. I have a tendency to trust my gut in these kind of situations. And I've got one more, I think, I want to ask your question, ask you about is, is it also true that people manufacture similarity? Yes. I mean, I think um, the way we would conceive of that is we would we would talk about familiarity. Okay. And one of the things that makes things feel familiar to us is similarity to things that we already know well. So similarity could be sort of like on a group membership level, people who are, you know, um, uh, share our religion, share our ethnicity, share our educational background, uh, gender, whatever. You know, all of those things, I think, can make someone, even someone you don't know, sort of, uh, you know, uh, seem more familiar. And also, um, a lot of times we don't remember exactly what something was. So something that's similar to something that happened, we may actually misremember for the thing that that we actually encountered. So often there, there's some fun research um, showing that people, you know, recognize brand logos, but they don't remember exactly how they're drawn. So a backwards Apple logo, people won't notice the, you know, won't necessarily notice the difference. And 
uh, and so on. So you see a lot of scams that sort of proceed by making things that look similar to um, to what we're familiar with, or by just exploiting sort of what we, you know, exactly what we're familiar with, just blatantly lying, but um, even just sort of exploiting that kind of similarity. So that really uh, can create sort of a vector that leads to trust. And then we're sort of, you know, down that path of, um, you know, of, of, um, of, of lowering our guard and, and doing less critical thinking, right? Once we're trusting in something that's familiar and similar to what we've experienced before. Even just naming your fraudulent company something similar to a, a genuine company that people respect. Can, yep. Yeah. Yeah. That's a classic sort of a, a classic basic basic scam, right? Is creating fake companies with similar names to real companies. And some people will notice the difference, but those who don't, now they're, you know, now they're one step into uh or one one step more likely to to do what you want. Right. Yes, I have seen that work in my own life, not because it was an intentional scam, but 20 some years ago, as we were creating Leadership Forum, we had just labeled the company and people would say to me, oh, yes, I've heard of you. To which the answer is, I really doubt it, but I'll take it if that's it. (laughs) I think it just sounded like something they might have heard somewhere, someplace else. But it's, it's an indication of, and we use it, thank you very much, I'll take that. But at the same time. It's uh, amazing how easy that is, both in the similarity of the naming, but also in the similarity of the person. So yeah. if I find that we have um, we grew up in the same town or the same area or went to the same university or yeah. some similar interest, we're much more likely and predisposed to then believe a bit more what you're saying. And that gets my focus off the stuff that I should be paying attention to that are clues. Yeah. And if you're a good scam artist and you want to hook somebody that way, you memorize a lot of details about a bunch of different hometowns. And you can then respond by saying, oh, yeah, I grew up there, too. That's right. You tell, we don't need to tell it here, but you tell a lovely story at the very beginning of the book about um, somebody who's doing a memory feat, I think, in an audience performance and how it is they get away with that. They're asking questions and then the audience responds as if they can read their mind. I think this is at the beginning of the book. I think I've got the context right, at least, and that we just yeah. miss because we're following along with a story. We're caught up in the moment. We miss the obvious ways in which the interviewer on stage was fishing for information. So, which is somebody who was uh, claiming to be able to commune with the dead, and yeah. you know, being able to troll their audience to figure out who they can kind of claim to know something about a, a past relative, right? Yeah, it's when you're caught in the emotion of that, it's another way in which you miss it. All and right, it's a so, self-selected group, right? Everybody who's right. attending that show has somebody they've lost who want and want to commune with them. So they're already prepared. Okay. Yeah. All right. So let's shift from how it is we get fooled. So we've got a nice lovely list of the ways. Is the advice now encountering this that I just become hyper cynical and cautious of absolutely everybody that I meet, put in lots of checks and balances? Is that the answer? That seems a little bit too much. Um, so uh, you you couldn't, you know, if you really take that to an extreme, right, you you couldn't really interact with the world because you'd be spending too much time checking everything and double checking and triple checking and then not to mention the worrying and the anxiety and so on. Um so uh, there are, I think, um, you know, a couple of things to, to keep in mind there. One is as the stakes go up, you should be more, you know, you, you should be more concerned and more, uh, you know, you should be checking more and asking more questions. 
Um, and two, you should ask sort of particular kinds of questions in, in different situations that might help um, reveal what's going on. Uh, so, for example, going back to focus, when we were talking about focus, it's very important to remember when you're getting a stream of information from someone, anyone, any any circumstance to think about, but especially if the stakes are high, to think about what's missing. Like, what are they not telling me about? Just like stop and consciously consider like what other information might be relevant here. So whenever you hear a sales pitch, right, uh, you know, for, for a consultant or whatever, what are the engagements they're not telling me about, right? What are the failures and so on? And that may be a very uncomfortable thing to ask, especially if you're in a, a team setting, right? To be the one person who says, well, tell me about some clients where it didn't work so well and so on. And of course you might get sort of glib answers, but at least thinking about those possibilities can uh, can help. Yeah, I would add to that that, Sometimes when I've talked with journalists, right, that I, I would recommend that they ask questions like, um, who would disagree with you if they're talking to an expert? So asking that expert, who might disagree with this perspective? Why might they disagree with you? Because they're not going to tell you that spontaneously. And right. that's the missing information that you actually need to evaluate the evidence. So thinking about what information you could need is a good step. The other step, in addition to, in addition to asking more questions, is to... Think about how much effort somebody would go to to scam you. They're not going to go to a huge amount of effort to make a few cents here and there. Right? That's, that's not, and that's a situation where you shouldn't really worry about it too much. Mm -hmm. If somebody were trying to sell fraudulent artwork to you at, and an expensive artwork, they might go to huge amounts of effort to fabricate the history of that painting. And that's because they stand to make a lot of money if they fool you. So they might take months setting things up. They might fake the history of the painting. They will get witnesses. They'll, they'll do lots of things that make it seem legitimate if they're trying to pass off something that's fake. They'll do a lot of the things that you would expect to see or something that's genuine. Mm -hmm. So those sorts of situations where you're, you're putting yourself at a lot of risk, it pays to think like a scammer. If I were going to try and scam me, how much effort would I go to? What would I do? You know, how would I how would I set this up? And those are the those are the sorts of questions that you can think about and say, okay, maybe there are some of those signs here, and how would I check them out? Okay. All right. So let's take that example: a painting. There have been several high-profile cases recently of art museums getting scammed, and you think, my goodness, how could this happen? But you're right, there's an elaborate history that's created, including, I'm assuming, things like pre-ownership and certification from various historians and so on. So there's months and years setting up the background history that people would expect. Um, so how When, when does, it's a deliberate fraud, yeah, when it's yeah. a deliberate fake, yeah. So how, um, but, you know, art museum curators are not trained to think like scammers. So how would you instruct an art museum curator to think through a potential painting that they're about to buy, as an example? Well, first of all, um, what we've noticed in some of the cases like this is that, uh, let's say you're the curator or you're the purchaser or something like that. Um, if you want to make this purchase or have this great artist in your collection or something like that, um, you may have a tendency to look at the signs that are there in the light most favorable to the idea that this, there's no fraud going on. So, for example, in a, in a famous case, um, uh, you know, potential buyers were shown a list of experts who had examined the painting. Mm -hmm. 
And it looks very impressive because even one of them was the, was the artist's own son, you know, and then there's other famous people and so on. But it said they examined the painting. It didn't say they said the painting was genuine. It said they examined the painting. In other cases, um, letters from experts were were, were given, um, but there was material omitted. So it was sort of quotes, selective quotes from, you know, from experts and, and so on. And of course, what you've got to constantly do in that case, again, is ask what's missing, right? Um, is this really the whole story? You have to ask for, you have to ask more questions about it. And even, um, I would say when the stakes are this high, you need to actually question your commitment or your belief that the people you're dealing with are being honest and haven't, you know, and haven't done this kind of thing before. So in the famous uh, Orlando Museum case, where they were offered a collection of, of 20 undiscovered Jean-Michel Basquiat paintings, which would be worth, you know, $100 million collectively, maybe, or something like that. It turned out that the people behind it had actually been um, convicted or, or found civilly liable for previous offenses. And I'm not sure who looked into that, but maybe if they had, they would have been less likely to actually make the deal with them. So it kind of seems obvious in retrospect, like make sure we're not dealing with people who've been convicted, make sure they're showing us the whole document, not just a sentence from it, read the fine, read the, the text carefully. Um, but, but that is, but that is what you need to do. Um, especially when you think about this, the stakes that are involved. And it's not trivial, right? I mean, as, as you said, it's not yeah. easy to do. A lot of people are not trained to do this in, in science fraud, right? The, the people who are consistently finding examples of science fraud are really experienced at digging through data and, and questioning it in ways that most people wouldn't, most scientists wouldn't. They're used to doing data forensics. And in every community, there are people who do that sort of forensics, right? In the financial world, you've got auditors who are trained to do that sort of digital forensics. In the art world, there are organizations that are specifically uh, paid and you know, hired to do forensics on paintings and, and check into their history and check into the pigments that were used and whether they actually existed at the time and check into whether the canvases are appropriate. And those are not the sorts of things that most people know how to do. But when the stakes are high enough, it's kind of insurance, right? In addition to getting insurance to that it won't go up in a fire, getting insurance that you're not being cheated, is, especially yes, in a world that's unregulated uh, to the degree that, say, the art world is, it makes a lot of sense. Right. Even to a world that is regulated, there are still mm -hmm. plenty of occasions where things squeak through that we would yeah. prefer not yeah. to. Yeah. I, I would. Can I add two, can I add two yeah. other things that I think are very actionable? One is, as Dan sort of alluded to, you don't know like about pigments and canvases. So you've got to get an independent expert to help you. And that gives you two advantages. One, you get the expertise, but two, you get another person who is not as invested in the decision as you are. And it's very important often to have a, uh, well, you could say devil's advocate, but basically just an independent person who is not in the situation. We found many examples um, where there were people who had sort of proceeded several steps down the line to making a bad decision as wiring money to some, you know, sketchy fraudsters or something like that. And, and someone else would like overhear the conversation and immediately understand that there was a fraud going on. But the person in it who was just as smart, just as educated, just as well-meaning and so on, didn't catch it. You know, so that outside view I think is is really critical. Um, but then the other thing is, I think we need to also try to diversify our our exposures more. So in investing, you're not supposed to own just one stock, right? You're supposed to diversify your portfolio. You're supposed to have different classes of assets, not just stocks, but also maybe some cash, maybe some bonds, maybe some real estate, and so on. Um, some of the people who fell victim to to Bernie Madoff and other you know Ponzi schemers and so on had literally put all their money 
you know, with with one money manager who was not, let's say, you know, Goldman Sachs or Morgan Stanley or some name, which is unlikely to be a total, you know, Ponzi scheme. Um, so if you had only put 10% of your money with Bernie Madoff or 20%, it wouldn't have been a life-changing disaster. Um, and likewise, um, with a lot of other areas, you know, diversifying your sources of information is important too. You can't be as as misled if if your sources of information sort of push and pull in multiple directions, right? Whereas if they're all coming from the same political point of view or the same business guru or something like that, right? Then, you know, you might be uh, more vulnerable because you're not diversified enough. Right. That makes a lot of sense. I come back to one thing that I think is for everyone is worth highlighting, business or personal life. And that is when you want something to be true, you get invested in it. That is the first step for being sucked in because you're going to ignore the hard questions. You're going to gloss over the information that is or isn't there. And that's the first. I think when you get that invested in wanting it to be true, you got to pause. And, and it doesn't even have to be that invested, right? It, things that you expect to be true are the things you don't question as much when they happen. Yeah. Right? It's It's the surprise things that you might ask about if they run counter to what you believe. But the things that run consistent with your beliefs often just don't get checked in the same way. I think yep. that's probably the biggest source of error in the scientific world, that you get a result that matches what you expected, so you don't double and triple check it to make sure that all the numbers are right. Whereas mm -hmm. if it came out the opposite of what you expected, you would double and triple check. Right. So which things make it into the literature? It's the ones that you predicted, not right. the ones you didn't. Same thing when you're looking at your in, your financial statements or your internal reports, you know, in your business or something like that. If if you get a report that shows things are working exactly as you expect the strategy to be working and so on, you're less likely to even check for accounting errors or arithmetic errors or deeper fraud, right? You know, yeah. the, than that. So it, that ha that happens all over the place. Well, and it's one of the pieces of advice I give senior leaders who are trying to cope with the magnitude of information around them, and they can't dig into every single thing, is that you have a few leading indicators, and so long as those leading indicators are in the right direction that are consistent with what else you're seeing or expecting, there's less value to your time in diving deeply. So you can see how that could lead to misjudgments. But at the same time, as you said, I can't double and triple check every single number that comes across my desk as a manager. I will hamstring the organization and I won't get anything done. There are tricks to this, right? So one of the tactics that's often used is red teaming. So having people whose explicit job is to, is to look at that information in a way that if they, if they believed the opposite, if they expected the opposite, um, how would they question it? And how would they challenge it? And if you set up people who are going to go into the task with the goal of countering your perspective, um, and you can't take it out on them if they're if they're right, but that that can give you that diversified view where you're not just accepting things that you predicted. The people who are trying to analyze it as if they predicted the opposite are going to try and pick holes in it. Right. Right. So I come back to the flags to watch out for, just to kind of repeat what I've heard from you guys, that these are the ones that should be like tick marks in my mind going, wait, hold on, pause. One of those is I want it to be true, or I believe it should be true, or I'm invested in some way, number one. Number two, I'm rushed. So I'm not looking through it in the same way I might look otherwise. Number three, 
I'm listening to a very select set of people or a set of information. So my info isn't diversified. Um, number three, I'm comfortable trusting my gut, maybe too comfortable in an area where I'm not a deep expert. Number four, there's a familiarity, a familiarity with the person, with their group identification, with the logos, with the brands, with the setup, with the whatever tends to lower our guard, that those are the kind of flags I want to pay attention to. And then the main antidote you've given me on this one is to question. I have to look for what's missing. I have to also think about, um, you know, who else should I be calling on who will look this in a different way? I want to be thinking about if somebody were trying to scam me or set up a fraud or send misinformation, how would they set that up? What would they be doing? And this idea of red teaming, if this were not going to be accurate, where would we look to say if it was inaccurate and so on? So I've got a, all of those are around how do I question the information that I've been given and get out of my bias to favor what's in front of me? Yeah, and, and there, are, there are a few other sort of kinds of information that we find particularly appealing and maybe don't question as much Okay, um, that apply in, in specific situations. So we tend to really like things that are consistent. Yeah. You know, you want that consultant to always have good results, but in practice, that's not what happens, right? You want your business strategy to always succeed and succeed at the same level every single time, but that's not how things work. There's a lot of randomness in any big complex organization or system. And I think people underappreciate noise and how much noise there should be. Um, when you get somebody telling you this is going to work the same way every time, that's how Bernie Madoff was so successful. He had returns every year of 8 to 14%, never had a down year, never had really huge years. But that consistency is incredibly appealing, even though it's actually impossible. Um, and thinking about what's possible here, could you really have results that consistent and that true, that good? Or is it actually something you should look at as a red flag? It's it. You know, you should expect people to not always have perfect results. Um, if they always do, that's worrisome, not necessarily a great thing. Another another one is um, highly potent things. You know, a tiny little change makes a huge difference. If somebody's trying to pass off something that's fake, that's a really appealing way to do it because we love that sort of miracle cure, right? that one quick fix. And whenever somebody's promising that, you should be really questioning, does this really work as broadly as they claim? Does it work as powerfully as they claim? Or was it set up just to give you that result in that moment, like a, a tech industry demo that only works under the right conditions and doesn't work if you actually throw a baseball at the window of the car? Right. <laughs> just to or, mention, or some other things. Just to mention one example. <laughs> or yeah. some other things. <laughs> All right. I want to go back to the consistency because you talk about, I think this is a really interesting one to um, pursue for a moment. You talk about in some of the major chess setups where we discovered that people were cheating either in poker or in chess, but it's the chess one that I'm remembering. You, you want to tell that story and how that gets caught on this consistency principle? Yeah, sure. That's that's happened to me and a lot of other people in the in in, in the in the chess world. I was playing a game on uh, online against this guy, and 
uh, you know, it was an interesting game, but it, I had this weird experience that he was always like countering all of my threats and I, I didn't see a lot of his moves coming and, and so on. And by the end of the game I had lost and, and, um, you know, it, my first reaction was, well, that guy was, that guy was, you know, surprisingly good. Um, but then when you actually go and look at the detailed data that these chess websites will give you, you can see things like he was always using almost exactly the same amount of time on each move. Now, why should that be a red flag? Well, chess is a really complicated game. Um, sometimes you have to take more time for a decision. Sometimes you have to take less time. You've got to balance it out. The only thing that can make great moves, you know, with the same amount of time all the time is a computer. Um, and, you know, so what the guy was doing was um, looking at a computer, putting the move in there, getting the getting the move out and just putting it back in, which takes about the same amount of time, no matter, you know, no matter how much um, time you have. Also, weirdly enough, his his own rating had gone straight up for the last two weeks from sort of like beginner to master, like in two weeks. And there's no way that anybody has a straight, you know, rise in, in, in chess skill. Um, even the, you know, even the heroine of the Queen's Gambit lost a couple of games in that, you know, in that, in that series, you know, so like you, you never go, you never go straight, straight up like that. And um, the, the excessive consistency in these cases, consistency of time usage, consistency of performance, consistency of agreeing with the moves a computer would make are all signs of cheating. And those are actually signs that are used to detect real human cheaters in like actual serious events. Um, this was just a casual game, you know, on an online site. Um, and uh, it's kind of somewhat reminiscent of the of the Madoff situation or of, let's say, companies that manipulate their earnings. They always beat earnings by one cent every quarter, quarter after quarter after quarter. That's not really you know, not really possible in a normal business, you know, climate, but yet that kind of thing was prized for quite a while by investors, you know, as a, you know, as exactly what you're, what you're looking for. Yeah. Uh, you can see that you expect some ups and downs, some noise, yeah. as you said, Dan earlier, and that if things are just constantly steadily moving, always great, you should pause and go back and look for information. What's missing? Do the forensics see if it's one of those rare events, or if it's not real at all. Yeah. Okay, now let's go to the second one you said, um, Dan, which was about highly potent. We love the miracle. We love the underdog rising to hero story. We love the one small move makes all the difference in the world. We love the one magic pill that you can take that will completely transform your longevity and your health, et cetera. We all love those. Uh, how do we how, how do we spot those? Is, do you have advice on yeah. this? Well, I mean, I think one thing to keep in mind is that there are real cases like that that have huge benefits from something that seems tiny. So antibiotics, vaccines are both examples of things that have tremendous benefits to society from something that's fairly small. Right? But those are really, really rare. And, and of course, a lot of work went into developing those. But that that discovery that has a huge benefit, those are rare effects. I mean, if if there were tons of those sorts of things out there, they probably would have been noticed already. And there just aren't that many. So as a general principle, big outcomes, big benefits require big effort. And we should be really skeptical whenever somebody says, you can just do this one quick thing and it's going to solve your really, really complex societal problems. We see this all the time in science. Things get published in the scientific literature where people make a claim that just doing this one simple thing will solve a complex problem like racial disparities in in school punishment outcomes, right? Mm -hmm. That are determined by many, many factors, not just, you know, do they believe in themselves, right? That, right. 
there's this tendency to think, hey, we can intervene with something really simple and look at this giant effect it has. We need to think about what kind of effect should we expect given what has been tried before, okay. given how much money has gone into solving some of these problems, how many different kinds of efforts and how much intensive effort has gone into solving them with relatively little benefit. We shouldn't expect a quick fix under those case conditions. I'm going to make a slightly controversial statement, hopefully none to none of my listeners. But, you know, with the COVID-19 vaccine, one of the things I think happened is that it seemed like it came out rapidly mm -hmm. and too rapidly to be slightly believable. And I think had the, had the pharma companies and the governments in general talked more about the background research that had led to make this possible – you would see that there had been a huge amount of effort that suddenly was needed now. And I think it would have made the vaccine more believable because mm -hmm. the amount of effort is now matching the output. And I, I think, think that's what you're pointing at, Dan. Yeah. Is that right? It was something new. Yeah. But yeah, there were decades of work on, on the underlying basic science that led to the capability to develop something really rapidly. And yeah. But yeah, it was new. It was a new technique, but it wasn't out of the blue. It wasn't some... You know, somebody saying, the doctors won't believe you, but here's this miracle cure. It, it was something that had been developed in basic science for years. Yeah, and not only that, but when I, I remember this very vividly, people were saying at the very beginning of the pandemic, oh, it takes four to 10 years to develop a vaccine. And everyone's like, oh, <laughs> crap, four be. to 10 years. But that's when the whole world, you know, biomedical community is not working on it all at once. Um, you know, and when the government is not pouring, you know, tens of billions of dollars, multiple governments pouring tens of billion dollars into this. And when people are, you know, when there are so many people, you know, with the disease that you can easily find volunteers for the clinical trials and, and so on, right? So it's it's not sort of like the length of time, it's the concentration of effort. And I agree right. with you. I think that could have been explained better. Um, and also that mRNA technology had been around for quite a while and was being developed over the last, you know, 20 years or whatever. But yeah. it did seem quite out of the blue. And in it, you know, not in keeping with previous experience. And that's, you know, that sometimes that does happen, right? Sometimes that really is a new, yeah. you know, breakthrough. Sometimes there's a moonshot. Right? Yeah. But it took huge, <laughs> huge amounts of effort to get there. Lots of people and, and lots of money yeah. and lots and of, it, lots of, and lots it could of, have failed, of, right? I mean, it could have failed, right? The, the, the clinical trials potentially could have shown that it didn't work. Yes. And, you know, what was amazing but, was that it was as, as effective as it was in this first attempt. Um, it was, it was a huge breakthrough. It's one of those rare cases where, you know, something new worked really, really well. It seemed to work. Mm -hmm. um, of course, we don't hear about the number of failures before we got the one success either. So that's also another piece of information. It's back to the same thing. Yep. You said yep. um, I know that one of the things that you make a big deal about is the truth bias. And we haven't really talked about that one. You want to kind of tell me how this truth bias works and why we should pay attention to it? Yeah, um, it's really the first in... It's really sort of the first thing that we need to understand to understand why we're so susceptible to deception, and it's it's part of our it's it's part of how our minds work that we really never even pay attention to, but we tend to automatically accept as true information that we see or hear or are told, um, and in order to question that requires a little bit of extra effort. So some people have gone so far as to argue that any information that comes in is sort of coded as true and you have to recode it as false or uncertain. There's not two options. There's not just true and false. There's also uncertain. You have to sort of make an effortful extra step of recoding it in order to be uncertain or to disbelieve something. And, and whether whatever exactly is happening, you know, in the brain and in the mind when this happens, um, we need to be aware that 
we are much more likely to believe things um, and accept them as true without questioning. And this gets back to the time pressure issue, right? Because one thing you need is a little bit of extra time in order to do this recoding process or to start thinking of counterexamples, reasons not to believe. And if we're in a hurry, you know, then we we don't do that. And the truth bias is likely to have an even greater effect there. And repetition sort of exploits the truth bias. Also, the more time something gets in as coded as true, the more likely you are to have a long-term belief that it's actually that it's actually true. There's a reason for the stereotype of the fast-talking salesman, right? The fast-talking salesman means you don't have time to question and think about all the things they're not telling you. And it's the same reason that that stage psychic has the really rapid banter where they kind of shift from one person to another so that you can't lock on to the falsehoods that they uttered, the things that you know to be false. You don't have time to think about them. That's why magicians are constantly bantering when they're doing their performances. It's something that you're thinking about. And when you're thinking about that, you're not thinking about their method. It strikes me that everything we've said today is as applicable to misinformation as it is to scams or being fooled or, you know, investing in something that wasn't a legitimate investment. It's all the ways in which we need to start to think, is there a flag here that I should question or dig deeper into the truth of this It's being said? And that is important for business. It's important for leaders. It's important for the world in general as well. Um, I have one last question for the two of you in the last couple minutes remaining. Um, Chris, I'll go with you first. What takes you out of your comfort zone and how do you succeed? (laughs) <laughs> uh wow that's a that that's uh that, that's a tough one um i mean i do think that uh one of my you know one of my weaknesses is um working with um you know working with people that i don't know that i haven't met and so on and and sometimes you don't have too much time you've got to really you know sort of how to you know c- come to some kind of um you know shared way of working and so on and i should definitely uh i should definitely get get better uh, get better at that how do I succeed? I'm not really sure. I'm still where I'm still that I'm still working on. I'm still working on that. But in my in my day job, I do run into a lot of people that I, you know that I meet with the first time or something like that. And you know, I think it can and can help to realize that they don't know the same stuff you do. You don't know the same stuff they do. That there's like a lot of you know that's called the curse of knowledge sometimes, right? That right. you know you have to really appreciate that you don't have a shared you know understanding of a lot of things, and that I think can help. Great. Thank you. Dan, how about for you? What takes you out of comfort zone and how do you succeed? I'd give a curse of knowledge example as well, which is uh, teaching, which I have to do all mm-hmm. the time. Um, you know, quite often I have to teach things that I'm, I don't feel like I have true expertise in. And I certainly know a lot more than the people I'm teaching uh, most of the time, but you know, I still have to be able to convey, convey material and lead discussions and lead interactions on content that I don't necessarily know in the way that I would want to if it were, say, one of my research programs where I really want to dig deep and know everything about it. I can't do that if I'm teaching an introductory general course. Right. Um, so that that's a feel, I always feel like I'm out of my comfort zone when I'm teaching something that I, I know but don't know as well as I would like to know. And for me, it's just kind of reminding myself that, yeah, okay, I might get something wrong, but I'm still also learning about the content and I can at least approximate the right answers and help my students kind of get to that same point. Great. Great comparison on both of these for the problems that I see with people being expert leaders. And when you're outside of your expertise and outside of your comfort zone or outside your comfort familiar territory of people as well. 
Um, Dan and Chris, thanks for being guests today. What a fabulous book. Can't recommend entertaining as well as it stops to make you thanks. So thanks for being with us today. Thanks for having us on. If you like the podcast, please like us on your favorite podcast server. Definitely join us for another um, episode in getting out of your comfort zone and send us an email at wanda.wallace at leadership-forum.com or Dan, where can they reach you? Uh, just at dansimons.com has all the information about our, our book and contact information for both of us. And, Great. And, all right. Fantastic. So long until the next conversation. Thank you for joining us today. Tune in for another edition next week with Dr. Wanda Wallace on the Voice America Business Channel. Reach outside your comfort zone this week.